Transitions are really hard in general. I mean, those periods of transition, this goes back to my wheel of time concept. Like that's the period of destruction into that rebirth. And during those periods of destruction, it's so hard to see what the rebirth is going to be. You don't like it's blackness. There's just only blackness around you and you feel that blackness and it weighs on you. Transitions, like there's just no way around how challenging they feel. The only advice I have is your identity shifts as soon as you're willing to change that identity and stop trying to cling on to the old one. The people that I've seen thrive through identity changes were the people that just said, okay, this is the change. This is the end of it. This is the new version of what I am going to be. This is me 2.0, right? Like everything is forward progress. Everything is an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to be better than I was. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And today's guest is Sahil Bloom. Sahil is one of the most popular creators on Twitter, and the content he provides on health, mindset, money, life, and mental health is nothing short of world-class. What he has been able to accomplish by the age of 30 is absolutely insane. While at Stanford University, Sahil was a four-year member of the baseball team, where he helped lead the team to two NCAA Super Regional appearances. Sahil also won multiple awards for his academics, and even was advised by former Secretary of State, Dr. Condoleezza Rice. After leaving Stanford, he entered the world of finance where he worked his way up to vice president of a firm that managed billions of dollars in capital. However, things took an unexpected turn for Sahil a few years ago, and he found himself disconnected, overwhelmed with anxiety, and faced with a self-induced ultimatum that led him to the world of Twitter and media. We get into his comeback story as well as his thoughts on success, failure, addiction, things that are overrated, timelines, mental errors, life transitions, identity, and much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Sahil Bloom to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Sahil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I think a good place for us to start is with the post that you made today and you talked about five things to eliminate to become healthy, wealthy, and happy. If we could start there, I think people would really appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, this is something I think about a lot, which is really just like addition through subtraction sort of is the broad idea, right? Like we as humans constantly want to add things to our life. Like we're always thinking about what's the next thing we can add? What's the next thing we can get? And what you find when you do a lot of that is that it actually doesn't make you any better off in a lot of cases. Actually, all of that addition ends up somehow hurting your life in some way. And so I started thinking on this vein of like, what are the things we actually need to eliminate to scrub from our lives in order to make our lives better? And there's a bunch that I think, you know, like jump out to me and probably jump out to you. I'd be curious, you know, which ones in particular stick out in your mind. But like toxic relationships is one that I constantly think about because we all live our lives in this like kind of steady pattern where we're just going through and we accumulate relationships over time. And we rarely think about who are the relationships and the people that are actually holding us back. I call them boat anchors. It's just like the phrase that I've come to. Basically, the idea being they're like putting a drag on your life, like they're an anchor 
anchor that's down and you're trying to drive forward and they're somehow holding you back. Like these are the people that are telling you to be realistic. They're the people that are telling you like, you know, that your goals are a joke or laughing at you in some way. And we all have people like that in our lives and it takes a lot of courage to just scrub them. And so that's one that I keep thinking about. You know, I talk about it as boat anchors. The other way I think about these is I call it like black holes. Have you ever seen the movie Interstellar? I haven't, no. Oh, you got to see Interstellar, man. That's one of the best movies ever. Um, okay, well, that, that's like your homework from me. It's like you got to watch Interstellar because it's remarkable. But basically, there's this scene in Interstellar where they're trying to find a planet that is habitable. And there's this planet that's right on the edge of a black hole. And they think there's going to be life there. And then they go and there's not. And they're wondering why not. And their hypothesis is that the planet is too close to the black hole. And what that means is that all of the like lucky events that could have happened to spark life, the asteroids that could have hit it, all of those things got sucked into the black hole. And so none of the lucky stuff could touch that planet in order to spark life. And I think about that as like this amazing metaphor for your life. Like what are the black holes that exist in your life that are sucking up the luck and sucking the luck out of your ecosystem so that you're not able to actually go and get lucky in those instances? The black holes can be people, they can be actions that you're taking on a daily basis, habits that you have, but it's so powerful when you just start thinking about like, oh, what are those black holes that are anti-luck in my life and that are harming me and holding me back? These black holes for so many people, they end up getting in, in people's way and it's sometimes hard to get out of them once you're sucked into it, right? Like the black hole that I think of that nearly destroyed my life was addiction. And with the black hole of addiction, like you slowly enter that hole sometimes. And then the more you do, the more drugs you do, the more you drink or whatever it is, the more you get sucked in and sucked in and sucked in. And you get to a point where you're not even aware that you're in this black hole to begin with, right? Because that's your new normal. That's your, your new environment. And it ends up crippling people and destroying their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's a uniquely powerful one. And, you know, addiction comes in many forms, as you know. And there's, you know, so many different things that now we are exposed to that we can become addicted to. You know, and I, I think about it a lot, like just have been reading more about this whole idea of pleasure that is devoid of pain or struggle and how harmful that can be to your life. It's something I've just been like rattling around and thinking on. I think I originally saw Dr. Huberman talk about it, maybe a few other scientists, but this idea that like in a natural state, we shouldn't experience joy, happiness, pleasure without some associated struggle that created it. And when you do, those things are really unhealthy for you in the long run. Those are things like alcohol. Those are things like social media that just gives you constant dopamine hits without the struggle that actually leads to it. It's things like pornography that have that exact same impact. And so I've just been thinking more and more about making sure that the things that I'm experiencing pleasure and joy from are things that I have had to experience pain for and experience that struggle for. And I, you know, look, like relationships are a great example of that. Having a deep, real love for someone is amazing, but it comes with pain. It comes with pain when you lose that person. It comes with pain when they're sick, when you're sick. Like those experiences, you cannot have that love without an associated pain or struggle that comes from it. And the alternative is to never love anyone, to never have those sort of type of deep relationships. But what kind of life is that? And so I've just been thinking more and more and rattling around in my mind of like, we really need to chase those struggles because the pleasures that come from those struggles and the associated joy that comes from those struggles is the most tangible and the most meaningful joy that we can experience in life. Have you ever connected with Dr. Anna Lemke? You know who she is from Stanford? I do know who she is. I've never connected with her. She just wrote Dopamine Nation, right? Yeah, have you read it? 
I haven't read it yet. I've like kind of read the intro to it. Well, that there's your homework because I think what you're talking about is exactly what she talks about with dopamine and addiction and that it's like the pain pleasure trap. And it's like the same part of your brain that like deals with pain is also the same part that manages pleasure. So she talks about, you know, whenever you experience pleasure, there has to be pain to come with it, right? So if you do something in the short term that feels pleasurable, like you talked about some of the examples, whether it be pornography, it could be drinking alcohol, it could be, you know, cheating on your partner, whatever it is to give you that instant hit, there's going to be pain afterwards. And a lot of times the pain that comes is more, you know, long-term pain because, it's just having, you know, rippling effects in other areas of your life. And the opposite is also true. So she always talks about like when somebody's having a craving for something, whether it's a, a drug or, you know, something that they were addicted to, it's like doing something painful, right? And that could be like sitting with your feelings in that moment. It could be taking a cold plunge. It could be going in the sauna. It could be doing a hard workout because afterwards, like your brain will recalibrate itself and you'll feel some form of pleasure. Absolutely. Preaching to the choir here, man. I love that. Yeah. So I want to dive into your story a little bit more. So take me back, man. Take me back to 2020. You're essentially at the pinnacle of your career in the finance business. You're making a lot of money. You're busy as heck. What was going on in your life? How were you feeling mentally, emotionally, spiritually? And what happened that made you make this massive change that you made? So March of 2020 was a massive forcing function change for a lot of us in the world. COVID lockdowns, you know, we're all stuck at home. I think that was one of the biggest forced slowdown events in the history of the world in that it caused everybody to just have their entire lives grind to a halt. All of your busyness, all of the movements, all the things you were doing, immediately you were stuck at home. And it caused a lot of people to be more introspective about what they were doing on a day-to-day -day basis and what they wanted to be doing for the next 20, 30 years of their lives. I was among them. I had, for the six years prior to that, kind of slowly risen through the ranks of the world of traditional finance, had candidly like an amazing experience doing so in terms of learning the people I got to be around, mentors, incredible colleagues, you know, is profitable, made money, et cetera. But it was not for me in the long term. You know, I was not operating in my zone of genius, to use a phrase that I like to talk about. It was not energy creating for me. It was very much something that, you know, I felt like I could be good at, but I was never going to be the best at because I didn't have that deep desire to do it. I didn't have that like insane flip a switch, just like put your head down because I'm getting so much energy from this mentality around it. And you know, look, I thought it was like the path that I was going down because I thought it was the one I was supposed to go down versus the one I wanted to be going down and versus the one that I thought I should be going down. And I think we all have that. Like we have assumptions that get built up in our minds on the basis of family pressures, cultural pressures, societal pressures that really are hard to shake and they're hard to scrub away. And COVID for a lot of people was like a moment when you could start thinking about that. And I think it's led to a lot of quitting, it's led to a lot of job changes, it's led to people moving and all of those things because all of a sudden you were able to start chipping away and able to start scrubbing away at those things. And that was really for me what happened was, you know, I was stuck at home. I wasn't working the like 80 to 100 hour weeks that I was before because things weren't quite as busy. And I had to ask myself, like, what am I going to do with my extra time? I had always loved writing. I had always gotten a ton of energy from reading, from writing, and I loved connecting with people. And I didn't really know how those things could come together. I certainly didn't know that there was like a job, quote unquote, that existed within all of that. But I just started sharing. Like my, my biggest belief in life, to put it succinctly, is that you have to just start moving. 
like movement creates momentum is a better way to put it. If you go and like, you know, read too much and study too much and go and like prepare too much for all these things, sometimes that just creates paralysis. And so my big belief is that you just have to start moving. And sometimes you find passion from making movement in the right direction. You find momentum from just creating some initial movement. And so I just started doing that. I started writing. And what I found was that there was all of a sudden this like momentum that was getting created. There was a little bit of product market fit to use a, you know, business phrase around the things I was creating and writing. And it started to scale. It started to make some money. And there was really something to it. And so I was sort of able to start seeing the picture of what that might look like, you know, very, very early on. It's cool that you were able to have this aha moment, like when you were still at the the height of your career in the financial industry. Yeah, although, you know, I will <laughs> I will say it was painful, right? You alluded to this at the beginning. There's there's this concept that I have from I guess it's from like ancient Indian culture of the wheel of time, which basically says that time goes through these cycles of creation, destruction and rebirth. And it's generally used to talk about like cosmic time and the cosmic calendar. I think it applies very, very clearly to our own lives, that our own lives, we go through multiple cycles of creation, destruction, and rebirth. And those periods of destruction are so painful. And you don't know what they're going to be, and they're so painful when you're in them. But if you can have the foresight to kind of zoom out and think about like what is the rebirth that comes from this destruction, there's something incredible that can come from them. And for me, I mean, that destruction period was really in May of 2021. So about a year after all that started, when I basically woke up on the floor of my house, like I'd had a full-blown kind of panic attack that was kind of matched with a really bad hangover, frankly, <laughs> um, and was basically this realization that I was living so far away from my family, from my parents who were on the East Coast, who were getting older, who were not going to be around forever. And this all of a sudden feeling of just like, oh my God, what am I doing? And I'm going to live my whole life and my parents are going to be gone. And my wife and I are going to be this far from family. You know, we were starting to think about kids. My parents aren't going to get to be a part of my kid's life. What am I doing on a day-to-day -day basis at work? Why am I doing this? Is this what I really want to be doing? You know, was I making a mistake? Like the weight of all of these things hit me really, really hard all of a sudden. And it was totally unpredictable. Like I, I don't feel like I'd had you know, some deep mental health struggle prior to that, but out of nowhere, it hit me and I felt like, you know, a thousand pounds on top of me. I couldn't get up. And that destruction ultimately led to the rebirth of where I feel like I am today and the process of like getting up off the ground, figuring out what's wrong, making the changes. I mean, we, within 45 days of that, had sold our house in California, moved back to the East Coast and bought a house here to be closer to family, quit my job, started this new thing. And that period of destruction into rebirth is such an amazing and beautiful thing when you can zoom out and actually see it. Mm. What a journey, man. And I want to unpack a few things. You mentioned that you really didn't have like, quote unquote, mental health struggles like before that, before you started to experience this panic attacks and just you're, you said you were on the ground, like just, you just felt like this huge weight that was on top of you that couldn't come off. But did you ever feel like any like nudges to make this transition like out of the financial industry and, and into something else? Like, did you ever experience moments where you just felt completely misaligned and, and just unhappy? I always knew that I didn't personally value money as like the highest priority of what I was doing. And that was very different than a lot of people in, in the finance world. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. Like when I, when I say, you know, that a person has like money as their highest value and what they're really striving towards and how they define success, I think that's great. 
I just think you need to figure out what your definition of success looks like and what your primary value is. It just isn't it for me. And it's really hard to succeed in the world of finance and investing if that's not your core like primary thing that you're striving for because you're going to be competing against people who it is. And for me it never really was. You know, like I want to I want to have enough. I you know, I I live in a nice house. I have a great life. I can take care of my son. I can do things when I want to. That's enough for me. Like I'm not I don't need a yacht. I don't need a private jet. And I don't think it's like cool to like have those things. Like I, it's just not something that excites me in any way. And so for me, I want to impact millions of people. Like I want to go out and impact the world and try to impact lives on a daily basis. And that was just misaligned with what I was doing on a daily basis. And so I sort of felt nudges over time where like, you know, you're with someone and they're talking about some lavish thing they did or some money that they spent on something. And like, look, I mean, I, my mom grew up in India. I've spent tons of time in India over my childhood. I feel deeply connected to the culture. And I spend a lot of time there. And you see kids who were like, you know, pooping on the street, like born on the street, don't have clean water to drink still, like can't get a primary education. And I'm talking about, you know, someone drinking a $10,000 bottle of wine. Like what the hell is wrong with our world if both of these things can exist simultaneously? And that's where my head was at. And so that for me over time, I was just like, man, I really need to figure out how to align more closely my values, what I care about, my passions, my interests with what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. And I've heard you talk a lot about like this, this addiction to dopamine. And I know like part of this quote unquote rock bottom was due because you were just pursuing this endless amount of money, right? You just wanted to make more and more and more. And now your passion is obviously on social media. You've, you've grown tremendously on Twitter and are a thought leader there. And then you've also, you're obsessed obviously in a good way with your health and wellness, but both of these things can become unhealthy too, where it's just like more, 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 more. Like how have you been able to manage your relationship with, with dopamine and achievement and this notion of more, more, more in a way that's, that's healthy so that you're not falling into unhealthy patterns with what you're doing now? After a long day of work, I use the evenings to decompress and relax. One of the pillars of my evening routine is taking my daily serving of mellow magnesium. As someone who has a hard time sitting still or winding down, spending a minute or two taking mellow has really helped me take the edge off before I go to bed, and I find myself being able to fall asleep much easier after taking it. This allows me to feel well-rested so that I can be the best version of myself personally and professionally. Mellow Magnesium is a powerful daily magnesium supplement that also contains GABA, L-theanine, and 70-plus trace minerals specifically formulated for whole body and brain absorption. So become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with code Doug. Go to helloned.com slash Doug or enter in code Doug at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash Doug to get 15% off. So thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Oh, and one other thing. Ned also offers other products such as their full-spectrum CBD. Please be sure to do your own due diligence and make sure the consumption of any products that Ned offers are safe for you or the individual consuming it and that it won't conflict with any extenuating circumstances that you or the person consuming it may have for work, school, probation, athletic commissions, etc. Now back to the show. It's a great question. I'm addicted to progress and growth. Like if I, if I have an addiction, it is that I constantly want to try to improve and get better at things. And I'm sort of insane. Like I'm a bit maniacal about things. Like I'm just, it's from my baseball days and from the training background I had. But like, you know, if you're following me on Instagram, 
you'll see a story of me doing front squat grit, you know, front rack barbell Bulgarian split squats in my garage by myself in the morning. And like, why the hell am I doing that? Right? Like I'm not training for anything. I'm not playing baseball still and I'm alone and I'm not trying to impress anyone. And it's like, I just am wired that way. And I'm sort of a little bit insane. And I personally think that if you want to achieve like those top 0.01% outcomes, you have to have like a little bit of like miswiring in your brain. Like you need a little bit of that insanity because you have to see something in yourself that the entire world cannot see in you at the time if you want to achieve those outcomes. So I am just like a little bit nuts in that way. And I have a little bit of that wiring. That also means that to your point, I am more likely to have some sort of you know, spiral associated with it and getting kind of like hooked into that progress and the dopamine associated with it. My biggest way of avoiding it is that I just find ways to like flip the switch on and off in a very, very clear way. So like, you know, with social media as an example, I'm constantly sharing on those places because that's a core part of my day to day and my job, quote unquote. But when I'm not on there, I'm not on there. Like I really need to shut it off, not have my phone on me, have it be in a different place. I mean, I go for, I probably walk 25,000 steps a day and that's not with my phone for the most part, right? Like I just leave my phone at home or I don't have it on me or it's in my pocket and I don't bring it out. And so I create forced separation as much as I possibly can to try to avoid those type of spirals associated with it. And to the point earlier, I do not pursue dopamine that doesn't have struggle associated with it. And look, like dopamine on Twitter, getting likes and all those kind of things, there's struggle associated with that for me because I had to write that stuff. Like I'm not using an AI bot to write my shit. I'm sitting down, it's taking me hours, right? Like I'm spending real time to put in to get that dopamine on all of these fronts. And so I'm not chasing cheap likes. I'm not like hacking the algorithm, you know, trying to just like, hack it however I can. Like this is tough for me. And this is like, it's a grind. I mean, it always has been. I haven't had like, you know, one thing that's grown me 20% of the way to where I am. It's just been, I've written 200,000 words on Twitter over the last two plus years, right? Like there's no hack. There's no secret sauce to that. I just wrote nonstop for a few years. So it's a long way of answering your question, but you know, definitely something I feel strongly about. Yeah, that makes total sense. And, and along those same lines, like how do you define success now? How do you measure success? Because throughout the course of your life, you've been involved with things like baseball, which is numbers and, da and data driven as far as success, working in the finance world, numbers and data driven. And even in like what you're doing now in the media space, it's very like data and numbers driven as far as like what makes people successful. So how do you personally measure success for yourself now? I think there are two primary ways for me today that I define success. Number one, Am I happy on a day-to-day -day basis? Do I have energy from what I'm doing? Do I feel fulfilled? You know, am I kind of in flow with my family, with myself, with the work I'm working on? And number two, on a grander scale, I want to impact millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. And that just means continuing to push, right? Like today, you know, maybe there's a few million people that I maybe can impact. I send out a newsletter that reaches 125-ish thousand people today. And it's amazing to me, the responses I get and the way the words impact people. And the fact that I can sit at my desk in New York, write something, and people from around the world can read that, feel it impact their lives and make some sort of change. That's remarkable to me. I mean, what other time in history has that been the case? And so for me, that is like a responsibility and also an opportunity to continue to scale that and to continue to do that. And, you know, look, when I was a kid, I used to think that 
I could change the world by like starting a company or maybe running for office. You know, I think today my way to change the world is with my words and with things, you know, that I can talk about and share. And I want to continue to do that. And I want to continue to scale that. And so I kind of think of success on both the micro and the macro level. The micro level is happiness, fulfillment on a daily basis. Do I have energy when I wake up in the morning? Am I like excited to attack the day? And then on the macro basis, am I impacting people at scale? And those are the two ways that I tend to think about it. And so on the other side of success is failure. And I think you are a prime example of somebody who has used multiple quote unquote failures in your life to your advantage to be able to leverage that in a way to grow so much personally and professionally. I mean, with your baseball career, like that ended and then you you made the most of that and then built a very successful career in the finance world. And that obviously came to an end. And now you've leveraged that to be able to build what you're doing now, which you're, you're very good and very successful at. But not everybody's able to do that, Sahil. There's a lot of people, failure stops them in their tracks and they lose belief in themselves. They think they're going to be a failure for the rest of their lives. Like what have been some of the keys? What have been some of the, the skills that you've acquired throughout your life that have allowed you to use failure to your advantage? I think a big part of it is just getting used to failure, frankly. There's this general fear that most people have of failure when you haven't failed a lot. You know, like everyone is terrified to go up and talk to someone at a bar because they're worried about getting rejected. You go do it a few times and get rejected a few times. Eh, it's not so scary now. Now you're like, hey, look, I, I, I'm alive. Like, it's okay. I'm good. And baseball forces you as a sport, and most sports do this, forces you to get comfortable with failure. Because like I was a pitcher, like you are going to have failures. And I hadn't had a whole lot of them in high school. And so I really needed them in order to humble myself. And that came for me when I got to college, I got to Stanford, having those public failures and having them on a grand stage were some of the most formative experiences for my life and for my mentality on how to approach life. The biggest one is it's in my Twitter bio. I gave up a grand slam on ESPN in 2012. We were playing at Florida State University in super regionals, Biggest game of the year, you know, we're on the elimination block, you know, winner goes to Omaha, which is like the holy land of college baseball. And I came into a game in a big spot, bases are loaded. If I get out of this, we've got a real chance to go win and, you know, and send the team forward. And I gave up a grand slam, you know, like if you're not a baseball fan, worst possible thing that you can do, like give up a home run. It's at their field. Their fans are going absolutely nuts. And you know, at the moment, that's like the worst moment of my life, right? Like my parents are in that my dad's there. I hero worship my dad my whole life, right? Like for my dad to see that happen to me, my then girlfriend, now wife was there. Just like an awful, awful dark moment. You feel so alone out there. But I got the next guy out. I got back up. I like took the ball back, got the new ball because that one was a long way away. And I got the next guy out. I made the next pitch and I got the next guy out. And later on, you know, it's, it's hard in the moment. You don't think about it. But reflecting on that, that's what's important to me. Like when I teach my son the lessons of these things, that's what I'm going to tell him is like, look, this happened, but I got the next guy out. Because at the end of the day, it's like, I'm not dead, right? Like the worst possible thing that I could imagine happening to me in baseball had happened, but I wasn't dead. And if you're not dead, you're not out of the fight. And so the, that mentality and hammering that mentality into your head to me is the most important thing anyone can do. Mm. 
it's exposure therapy, right? Like the best way to get good at something is to continually like try that thing, right? I mean, you, you brought up the girl thing. That's something that I struggled with for a long time was the fear of rejection when asking a girl out in public. Because I assumed that if I asked one girl out and she said no, that every other girl was going to say no. But what happened was kind of like you alluded to, like when you do it and they say no, it's like, eh, wasn't that bad. And I was actually proud of myself for actually having the courage to speak up and take that chance to ask that girl out. Yeah, I think it was Tim Ferriss in Four Hour Workweek had at the end of each section sort of these like comfort challenges, quote unquote, that were like, it was basically things like that. It was like, go talk to someone and pitch them on, you know, something. And like, and one of them might have been like asking for a girl's number or something like that. And there's something really powerful about that. Like, just force yourself to embrace those rejections and those failures over time. Like, you just, you start to become better at it. You become better at failing. And when you when you get good at failing, you tend to have more successes because you're willing to take shots. And shots on goal is all that matters in life. Like it's not, you know, it's not really about anything else. You need a lot of shots on goal if you're going to ultimately have some scores. And I think something that goes along with failure is sometimes people have these identity crises. And you see this a lot in sports when people, they retire and their identity was so wrapped up in who they were as a professional athlete, they have a hard time like letting that go to move in to something else, to move into something new that might make them successful. Like what advice would you have for somebody who might be listening to this, who's like in an identity crisis to come up with a new identity for themselves? Transitions are really hard in general. I mean, those periods of transition, this goes back to my wheel of time concept. Like that's the period of destruction into that rebirth. And during those periods of destruction, it's so hard to see what the rebirth is going to be. You don't like it's blackness. There's just only blackness around you and you feel that blackness and it weighs on you. Transitions, like there's just no way around how challenging they feel. The only advice I have is your identity shifts as soon as you're willing to change that identity and stop trying to cling on to the old one. The people that I've seen thrive through identity changes were the people that just said, okay, this is the change. This is the end of it. This is the new version of what I am going to be. This is me 2.0, right? Like everything is forward progress. Everything is an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to be better than I was. And, you know, maybe I was the hotshot athlete and things were going great for me and everyone thought I was awesome, but I'm going to be even better in this next phase. And they don't even know what's coming in terms of, you know, Doug 2.0. That is the biggest thing. It's like once you shift that definition in your head, the whole world will shift to embrace you. And this is like from the alchemist, right? It's like that whole idea that like the universe opens up to you when you deeply believe something. And I just think those identity shifts come from the internal shift that you're able to make with yourself. Yeah. And I think part of what holds people back from creating this new identity for themselves is imposter syndrome, where they don't feel worthy enough of stepping into that new thing, whatever it is. As somebody like yourself, who your background was in sports and then in the financial services world, do you ever struggle with imposter syndrome, you know, with what you're doing now? Yeah, all the time. Uh, yeah, I still, I mean, every day I feel like an imposter. Uh, um, I, um, I mean, my general perspective on imposter syndrome is that it's, it's often a good thing because it forces you to, to grow feeling like an imposter means you don't feel quite ready for the thing that you're pursuing. And generally speaking, that's a good thing. You shouldn't feel perfectly ready for any new opportunity that you're taking on because it's too easy then if you feel that ready. And so I think for the most part, imposter syndrome can be used to your benefit. It's like the mental shift around it is, you know, imposter syndrome generally says like, oh my God, the world is going to realize that I'm not 
ready for this thing that I'm doing. The mental shift is like, oh my God, this is an opportunity for me to grow and get better and earn this thing that I am doing now. And just by definition, you are an imposter until you do the thing. Like Jeff Bezos was not some like trillion dollar company CEO when he started Amazon. He was an imposter doing that thing, or he was an imposter running an e-commerce store until he went and did it and built this incredible thing. Elon Musk was an imposter in the space industry until he went and built SpaceX. So we are all imposters at what we were doing until we go and do them. And so just like embracing that mental shift around imposter syndrome has been really helpful for me. But look, I kind of just laugh at it now. Like I, I think it's absurd some of the stuff I get to do and you know some of the things people look to me for because I constantly think like, man, they're going to figure me out. Like I'm a total joke. You know, this is absurd that they're listening to me or talk about these things. But you build and earn credibility over time from just doing it. I was on Twitter last night and I saw Tim Cook tweet out like that the new iPads are kind of started to go out. And I saw you like kind of reply back and we're like, you just got yours. And the reason I bring this up is I know he's been a mentor of yours throughout the years. And I was telling you this before we recorded. I mean, you're in your early 30s, but people listening to you, they might think you're like 60 based on the, the amount of wisdom that you have and what you share and how you're able to kind of articulate it in a way that is easily understandable for people that are listening to this. Like, how did you become so wise? Like, how did you develop this skill to be a sponge for knowledge and information to be able to use it to your advantage, you know, personally and professionally? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I don't consider myself particularly wise. I do consider myself someone that loves people and loves learning from people. And that's people from all walks of life, right? Like you mentioned Tim Cook. He's amazing. He's an incredible person that I've learned a lot from over the years. But I learned just as much from like the Uber driver, the Uber that I'll take into the city, right? You can learn so much from everyone you encounter if you open up to it. I'm not like saying that as just some cliche. I really do mean that. Like if you talk to people and you ask them about their aspirations, you ask them about what they're struggling with, you ask them about, you know, what they're hoping to do, what their stories are, their backgrounds, you accumulate this unbelievable mass of insights and experiences about the human condition that you never would have built up if you just close yourself off to the world or if you only talk to people that you think are quote unquote valuable to you. And if there's one thing I've done over my life, it's that like, I just talk to people constantly. I love talking to people. I love, you know, meeting people in person, really. I hate Zoom calls, but I love meeting people in person and getting to really experience them and listen to them. And, you know, that's what wisdom comes from, I think. It's like understanding the human condition and all different walks of life and seeing it across, you know, a variety of people is, I personally, that's what I believe wisdom is. It's not your age and the things that you've personally experienced. It's embracing and opening yourself up to the collective experiences of everyone that you encounter. And I think one of the things that often goes along with wisdom is you'll, you'll hear people that have experienced life, they will tell people that the things that a lot of people chase after, that they want and that they're like pushing towards, they're often overrated. And I know that you've experienced a lot of success as we've talked about both personally and professionally, and you have a lot of wisdom through the years from learning from so many different people. Like what are like three to five things that you've realized throughout your life that many people might be thinking they're, the juice is worth the squeeze, but really the juice isn't worth the squeeze? I think fame is pretty overrated. I think this is one that I've talked about a little bit recently. Like people have this obsession with wanting to be famous. I think the reality of it actually sounds pretty shitty in general. Like, you know, you lose your privacy. There's people constantly asking questions about you, wondering about you. Safety is a concern. There's always crazy people out there. 
I think fame is one that is just like, man, anyone that I know that has gotten famous, like it gets old pretty quickly. I think it sounds really cool, but it gets it gets old really quickly. Being right all the time is one that's definitely overrated to me. I used to just be obsessed with the idea of being right. And it was like, you know, immaturity, right? Like you just want to be right about things and you want to have all the answers to things. And observing amazing people and being around people that have made it, quote unquote, and achieved extraordinary success, you realize that they're not actually right more than the average person about things. They just ask great questions and they're willing to be wrong, actually, and they're willing to change their mind on things. And that mental shift, I'd say, is is a really important one. You know, the other big one for me is like luxury items, money, that type of stuff. It just doesn't drive incremental happiness beyond a certain point. And so if your goal is fulfillment, your goal is happiness, your goal is to feel energized every morning, like you're not going to wake up in the morning and feel energized because you have a fancy watch. It's just not, right? Like, you know, you have a fancy watch because maybe because you're trying to like status signal or trying to have sex or whatever that is. And what you find is like, first off, the people you're going to get compliments from on a fancy watch are other guys. And so if your goal is to like, you know, attract the opposite sex or attract a partner or whatever it is, generally those kind of things fall flat. Like I had a friend who said this in a really funny way recently. He was like, he got really jacked, but he, and he got really jacked and he looked incredible. And he was like, I did it because I was like, man, chicks are going to really dig this. It's going to be great for my dating life and all this stuff. He was like, what I realized very quickly was that the people that were giving me compliments on how I looked were all guys. And so it wasn't actually leading to the desired end of what he was hoping for in that case. And so he, you know, he changed tack. He was like, it wasn't worth the extra effort and all the things I was impacting my health in order to achieve that because it actually wasn't doing the thing I thought. It was the opposite of what I thought was going to happen. So that was another one that was just like, that was funny to me over time. Yeah. That is funny because as guys, we think that the more jacked we are, the more muscular we are, the more girls that we're going to get, right? And in most in most cases, yeah, obviously, I think women want their partner to be healthy and to take care of themselves and to be driven and that sort of thing, but not necessarily completely muscular and jacked, like bodybuilding type. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a... Um there's probably some evolutionary or like biological thing in there that's like it's too much versus like looking, you know, fit and like you can care for children and and take care of a family and hunt really well versus just like looking blocky and not really being able to move because you're too big. I don't know. I, I think it's really interesting. But like, look, the discipline and the determination and the energy and the effort and the like all of the things that lead to someone looking that way are amazing skills and incredible skill sets. Like I've, I've never met someone who is disciplined enough to look a certain way that I didn't think could be successful in, you know, the five other things that they were going on and pursuing. Cause that discipline and that wiring of being a little crazy tends to lead to other good things. If you apply that energy in the right way. I mean, fitness is the ultimate catalyst. I think it parallels so many things in your life that if you are disciplined with your fitness, that it'll make you more disciplined in relationships, make you more disciplined in your career, make you more disciplined personally with other things you're trying to to achieve because it's the perfect thing to show yourself the importance of incremental progress and celebrating small wins and just focusing on getting better at something each and every day. And we just spent some time talking about maybe some investments and some things to chase after that are overrated. I want to talk about some things that are worth it, like maybe a few of the best non-financial investments you've made over the years that have paid dividends? Eating well, like spending money to get good quality food supplements is one of the ones I really believe in. Like I never think you should skimp on the quality of the inputs into your body. You get one body, right? Like it's, it's actually crazy to me that people don't fully appreciate that gift at times and that we 
you know, neglect it through stress or through working too hard or through inactivity or through eating bad food, whatever it is. Like we literally get one of these and there is a point where you've done too much damage to it and it's really hard to reverse. And taking care of your body through daily movement and through eating well and through sleeping, like it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't need to do what I do and the like crazy regimen of all these million things. If you literally just sleep seven to eight hours a night, move around for 60 minutes a day in any way. Like that could be walking for all I care. You don't need to lift. You don't need to do like high intensity cardio. Just move around for 60 minutes a day and you eat real whole foods that like you can name the ingredients and it's, you know, you don't need a PhD to understand what the ingredient list is. You are 95% of the way there to being able taking care of your body, you know, among the best of them. That is like always going to be worth it to me. The other one I would say that always jumps out to me is just like, if you have a desire, you like are sparked in your interest to buy something like a book or like a course or like something that is going to improve you in some way and improve your knowledge base, improve your mind, just do it. Like defaulting to just buy those things and not think twice about it. I've never done one of those things and then regretted it. Like I have books I haven't read for sure, but when you have the interest and you're sparked to want to do something, just buy it. Like if it's an investment in yourself that way, those are things that we should always, you know, put energy behind and be proud to spend money on. I would say those are two. And then the last one I would say is like, I never regret spending time present with my family. And it depends on your definition of family. It could be just loved ones. It could be friends. You know, it could be your actual blood family, your parents. I never regret that. When I'm truly present with my son now, he's five months old. I mean, it's literally the best thing in the world. I wake up every single morning and I used to wake up and like, you know, I'd have whatever the stressful thing was that I had to do during the day. And I'd wake up and I'm like, man, like not feeling great, stressed, didn't sleep well, whatever. I wake up now bring my son into bed and, you know, make some funny faces at him and talk to him. And he smiles at me. And it's like, man, the whole world just melts away in that moment when you're present there. And there's no phone and there's no email and there's no tweets and there's no texts. It's literally just him locked in in that moment. And that's not going to last forever. He's five months old. You know, maybe he does this until he's five and then he's going to start having things, maybe 10 at the most. Like those moments, you're never going to get back. And so being present in them and really embracing that time that we get with our family because it's so precious and it's going to be gone before we know it, I think that's the absolute pinnacle of something you'll never regret. Amen to that, man. And I think in order to get present, it requires you to slow down. And we live in this hustle culture, which you immerse yourself in for years and years and years until you hit that rock bottom moment. But there's so many people... They're so busy. And on top of the busyness, they're distracted with their phones, they're distracted with social media, they're distracted with everything else that comes along with this culture that we're currently in. Like, what advice would you have for somebody? What's your elevator pitch to get them to slow down in a world, in a culture that's constantly keeping you busy and telling you you need to do more and more and more? I think you have to force the slowdown. I don't think there's any way around it. You know, I talk a lot about my kid, and I, you'll have to forgive me because I'm like a little bit obsessed. <laughs> you know, I'm like the annoying dad with all the magnet pictures in my <laughs> wallet, like showing them to everyone. But um, and I never thought I'd be that guy, but I am. But um, kids force you to slow down because the way they observe the world is so methodical and slow. I was holding my son the other day, and I have this tree in my office. And I carried him over there and he was just looking at it and probably for like a solid three minutes just stared at it and was like feeling the leaf and touching it and like smelling it. And 
I was forced to do that. I stood there and just stared at it with him. And I started to notice all these like intricate veins in the leaf and the way the water was kind of like on it, the little bit of dew on it. And it was so amazing to me because I have seen this tree. It's been in my office forever. I've seen this tree every single day and never noticed all of those things about it. And it was just this reminder to me that when we slow down and when we pause and when we just force ourselves to observe the things around us, we notice all these amazing, simple beauties about the world that we would have glazed over and never observed. And so forcing yourself to slow down now and then, and I would say daily, forcing yourself to slow down, even if it's for like five minutes, is such a powerful thing for your mental health because we just have we have a tendency to just want to rush from thing to thing. We're so busy and we take pride in being busy in this weird dystopian way. And when you force yourself to slow down, the world just opens up to you. The world just starts to feel better. You feel happier, more fulfilled. Everything's more beautiful. Everything kind of takes on a new color and a new tone. And there's just something so amazing about that. And I think along those same lines, people struggle with timelines where that's why they're trying to constantly rush things is that they need to, you know, they need to get married by 25. They need to make this amount of money by the time they're 35. They need to go on this trip. They need to have this house, like this car. Obviously, you know, you've have a much healthier relationship with things like time today, but was there ever a time where you personally struggled with the timelines of life? And if so, how? Timelines are bullshit, man. This is like my, this is one of my biggest things now. I used to stress so much about timelines. Like, you know, I got done with college and I was like, oh shit, you know, I'm, I was 23. I was like, I got to get Forbes 30 under 30. Like I saw people getting that. I was like, I need that. That's the thing that's going to define whether I'm successful or not. So I'm like, okay, I got to get that. What do I need to do to get that? Well, I got to be an associate by 25. I got to be a VP by 27. I got to try to make a principal before 30 and then I can be, and then I can be successful. Then I can get that time on. Oh man, the partner of the firm was already a partner by the time he was 30. So shit, like I actually got to do that. And it's just all made up. Like, right. It's, it's totally manufactured in your own mind that you have to do these things by these certain ages. And it's all based on comparisons to other people and what their timelines have looked like. And it's not internal. You're defining your success by something you cannot control. And that's such a dangerous game to play when you start saying that success is something that's actually out of your control. It's like an external affirmation that you need someone else to like bestow upon you. Because then when it doesn't happen, for whatever reason, it was out of your control in the first place, you're unhappy. And the reality is, like, if you made progress and you were growing and you were doing something you were passionate about, it doesn't matter. It's just something out of your control. I mean, I, I talked to someone recently. You know, I was reading um, Mark Manson has this book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F extremely famous book. And honestly, like, you know, clickbaity kind of title, awesome book, like really, really enjoyed it. And I've, I've listened to or read it several times now. And there's this story in it about this musician who got kicked out of a band, right as the band was about to make it, he gets kicked out. And he goes back across the country. And he's determined to like, I'm going to beat that band that just kicked me out. So I'm going to start a band. And I'm going to prove them wrong. And that was his whole definition of success was proving that prior band wrong by out competing them by doing better than them. He ends up going and starting this band called Megadeth, which becomes one of the most successful metal bands of all time. And yet he is deeply, deeply unhappy for his entire life. And why is that? Well, the band he got kicked out of was Metallica. And Metallica is probably the most successful band of all time. And you cannot possibly do better than them. And so he had defined success in his own mind as beating this other team, this other group. And it was just impossible. It wasn't going to happen. And if he had defined success as like achieving his own definition of success, he would have been so extraordinarily successful and happy by that metric because Megadeth was an amazing band. They achieved more than 99.99% of bands that get started out there. 
But when you have that external definition of success, you're exposing yourself to a lot of unfortunate things. What a story, man. I didn't know that. That's, that's insane. I didn't realize that the guy who started Megadeth was in Metallica. That's crazy. Unbelievable story. I love that. Like, I keep coming back to that. It's amazing. I mean, the same thing happened with this guy, the like juxtaposition that he creates is a guy that got kicked out of the Beatles. I think a drummer that got kicked out of the Beatles and um, ends up living like, you know, a happy life because his definition of success, he was able to define internally to say like, I just, I wanted a happy life with my family and with my kids and I like playing music. And he didn't attach it to like trying to be more successful than the Beatles, which again, you never would have been able to achieve. That's wild, man. So do you ever struggle with like any type of regret? Like, do you ever look back at maybe your baseball career and being like, man, I wish I would have like done this differently so I could have made it in that sport or even like with your career in the investment world, like, man, I wish I could have had a healthier relationship with work and time and could have like taken it to that level. Like, do you ever regret anything in your past? I would say at different times in my life, there were things that I regretted in my past. Now, when I sit here looking back at the full scope of it, I don't regret a thing because everything that... I did or that experiences that I had, the failures that I had, the pain that I experienced, whatever it was, has all led to where I am today. And I'm so happy and fortunate and grateful for where I am today that it's hard for me to feel any ounce of regret, right? Like all of the long weeks and long hours that I worked early on, the stresses that I had, I learned an unbelievable amount from that about, you know, putting my head down and grinding things out. I got to do it with some amazing colleagues who were friends for life. You know, and I wouldn't say a bad thing about any of that because it was all experience that built up for me to learn and for me to get to where I am today. So I think regret is an interesting thing. Like it's, it's hard to feel regret when you're happy about where you are and that you're happy about the trajectory and the way that it's moving. Yeah. I want to, you know, touch on your mental health again, because I know like you were struggling a lot with your mental health and anxiety, like back in 2021, when you decided to like uproot your life and move back to the East Coast. Like, where are you at with that now? Like, I know I know fitness and your health has is a big thing that helps you kind of stay grounded. I mean, do you still struggle with anxiety and stuff like that? I'm in a great place mentally. My mental health struggles personally were sort of a combination of factors of, you know, I hadn't figured out what my next stage of my life was professionally. And yet I had kind of started to separate myself from my prior one. And then I'd gotten rejected by a bunch of jobs. And so I hadn't, I just hadn't figured out what like my next step was. And I had been on this path of like steadily being more successful each year. And all of a sudden that was in question of like, oh my God, I'm actually not going to look successful next year because it doesn't seem like I know what's next. And so that was a piece of it. Being far away from family was a huge piece of it. The stress and anxiety of my parents getting older and, you know, realizing I'm not going to see them that many more times before they're not around was a terrible one. You know, relationships, stuff with my wife and, you know, our own sort of personal struggle around having a child that, you know, I think, frankly, like most people don't talk about. It's sort of this thing that like we all, a lot of people struggle with and no one wants to talk about, you know, conception and struggles that people have around it. And we were very blessed and fortunate to to end up having a child and he's healthy, knock on wood. And um, that has been a massive one in terms of just this feeling of gratefulness on a daily basis. I mean, I I take a cold plunge every morning. I tweet about this a lot and post it on Instagram, et cetera. And it's a massive part of my daily ritual. And, you know, part of it is I like submerge, you know, fully underneath the water and kind of experience it. It's like 39 degree water. So it's really brutal. And for the last like minute or two of it, I do a gratefulness exercise where I kind of in my mind list off things that I feel really grateful for in the moment. And every single morning I find myself just coming to like, I'm, I feel so grateful to have my son and my wife, my parents in my life, healthy relationship with my parents, with my sister. Those things are just 
aligned now in my life in a way that a year ago they just weren't. And that, I mean, for my own mental health and for anyone out there that's struggling, like finding alignment on those basic foundational building blocks of your life is so powerful for your mental health. The other thing that I just constantly advise people is like, I've yet to find a problem that can't be fixed by taking a walk. So many problems of the mind can be cured by just going out for a long walk by yourself, experiencing the fresh air, breathing, not with your phone, not with technology, just like let it go and go for a walk. So, so, so powerful if you're struggling with something. Walking is so underrated, man. And and the thing with the cold plunge too, I think the biggest benefit that I've often gotten from the cold plunge is just the fact that you're just doing something super hard that sucks or that you really don't want to do. But then once you do it, you get out and you feel like a million bucks. And I know something along those same lines that you talk a lot about that is hard for people to do is to be bored. Yet there's so many benefits of it. So why are you so passionate about people being bored more often? And what are the benefits that you think can come from it? When you're bored, great things happen. I don't have like a cleaner way to say it than that. We have this fear of being bored that has developed over time. And when you go back and study the greatest men and women in history, one of the things they all had in common was that they had literal periods of boredom built into their day. Walks with nothing but just nature walking around, sitting in a room silently alone. Blaise Pascal has this quote that's like, all of humanity's problems are due to you know man's inability to sit in a room alone, something like that. And it's really true. Like, When is the last time you as a listener sat down in a room with no phone, no technology, and literally just sat there even for like five minutes, not meditating either, by the way, like not breathing and meditating and doing a ritual, just sitting there and looking around. It's like, it's almost terrifying. I mean, before I started doing this as a daily practice, I found it hard to sit on the toilet without my phone. Like going to the bathroom without my phone was a legitimate struggle. And I still fight that urge. Like you want just something to be doing because that's how our minds are wired now. And so when you force yourself to be bored, you find this new creativity. You find that your mind, your ideas, things start to mingle in a way that they previously wouldn't have. And now for me, I mean, those periods of boredom are when my best ideas come. You know, it's when like I have those sparks of insight that end up leading to the, you know, 10x plus upside opportunities. Mm. Have you ever read the book, The Comfort Crisis by Michael Easter? No, should I? Dude. Oh. oh, you know what? Actually, that's not true. I did. Yeah, I, I have it. And I, I connected with him recently. No, I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't finished reading it, but I've read like the first half of it. Super solid dude. And I know he talks about like the power of boredom as well. And I want to talk about errors because I know something that you recently shared about is, is mental errors that people commonly make that can sometimes cost them. Like what are a few mental errors in your opinion that most people every day are making that are detrimental to their lives? You know, I think sunk cost is one of the biggest ones and it rarely gets the most likes when you talk about it on Twitter, which is a funny thing, but it's one that I see people making constantly. And like, even just on a day-to-day basis, someone will say something to me and I'm like, no, that's sunk cost. You shouldn't, that's not it. You should be thinking about it. You know, basically the idea that like we count already invested time and energy and money when making a decision about the future of something rather than just thinking about what the go forward requirement is going to be and, and what the potential is for it. And, you know, it leads to tons of bad business decisions obviously, and that you just think like, oh, well, I already invested $10 million in this, so I should keep investing. And the reality is that's sunk cost. You should think about just now, what am I going to have to continue to invest and what's the future of this look like? But it's, you know, like on a day-to-day basis, like, oh, I already paid for the plane tickets to that wedding and I really don't want to go to the wedding, but I already paid for it, so I should go. Well, actually, no, if you really don't want to go, you just shouldn't go and it's sunk cost. The money's gone. It doesn't matter. And so I see people making that one. I mean, 
a lot. Like that is <laughs> that's a that's a very very common one that uh, you know that sticks out to me. Survivorship bias is one that you know we're all falling victim to. Basically, we only take data from the kind of the winners, like the survivors, and we miss the data that comes from the people that didn't survive, from the losers. And so we have this like skewed perspective of what success is and the likelihood of that success. I mean, with startups, like you only see the the ones that ended up having the billion dollar outcomes. So you think every success is a every startup is a success, and obviously that's not the case. There's a lot like that. And I guess on the other side of mental errors is mental growth, is emotional growth. And I know that you've, you've read a lot of books, you've talked to a lot of people, but let's just say there's somebody who's listening to this that wants to better themselves after listening to this conversation. And you could only give them three books to read that you think would change their life. What would they be and why? When Breath Becomes Air is hands down the number one book that I send to people and recommend. I mean, it'll just punch you in the gut and change your life. The Alchemist is another book that I read basically every single year. It's fiction. There's almost no reason why like I feel that way other than that the words just impact me deeply and differently every single time I read it. And I guess the last one I would say is Man's Search for Meaning, which is another not quite as much of a gut punch, more of just like a very introspective view on finding meaning in your life. If I could only read three books again the rest of my life and I just cycled between those three, I'd be totally fine. I've read the second two. I haven't read the first one. I have to pick. Oh man, it's like don't read it in front. I read it on a plane the first time when Breath Becomes Air, and at the end of it, I was sobbing. I'm not much of a crier, but I was sobbing on a plane, like you know, really struggling to keep it in. And the woman next to me, that was sitting next to me, had to ask if I was okay. Like she thought I was on the way to a funeral or something like that because I was like really crying. I mean, I I would challenge anyone to not cry reading that book. It's really, really remarkable. I'm gonna have to pick it up and I'll make sure to link it also in the show notes. It's a quick read too. The last question I want to ask you is about the relationship with your dad. I mean, I know he's had a massive impact on you. You guys are very close and he's taught you a lot, but over the years, looking back now, like what are a few things that you've actually been able to teach him? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I would say I am in real time teaching my dad to slow down a bit and how to pause and how to appreciate the moment a bit more. My dad is one of the hardest working people I've ever encountered. He's one of the most driven people I've ever encountered. And he's one of the kindest people I've ever encountered. You know, he didn't have as great of a relationship with his dad. His family disowned him when he wanted to marry my mom. My dad's white, Jewish. My mom is Indian and his family wasn't super accepting of the fact that he wanted to marry someone who was Indian. And so I've never met my dad's dad. And I think The result of that was that my dad and my relationship was unbelievably strong, and I feel this deep connection to him. But I would say, look, I mean, he has always been extremely hard-charging and driven and wanting to write the next paper. He's an academic, so like write the next paper, do the next research, do whatever talk, like whatever the next thing is. And we're now at the stage of life where I just want him to slow down a bit, and I want him to enjoy you know, this phase of his life and reap the rewards of the success he's had and spend time with his grandchildren. And I'm showing him how to do that because I'm doing that, you know, as a father now. And that is like a really amazing thing. You know, our relationship has shifted as a result of like my becoming a father. And I feel that in terms of how I interact with him and how I experience him as as a grandfather now. And it's really amazing. It really is amazing thing. That's beautiful, man. I mean, I think it's, it's really amazing that you've been able to have this shift where your dad, you know, taught you so much throughout your life. And now you're at a point where you've had your own kid and you've moved back closer to your family where you're able to now 
pay it forward and give back to him in the way that he did for you. So Sahil, this has been amazing. I mean, it's been a tactical conversation where I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value from this and be able to hopefully implement some of the information that you shared right away into their lives. If people want to connect with you, if they want to sign up for your newsletter, if they want to follow along with what you're doing on social media, where's the best place for them to do that? Newsletter is sahilbloom.com slash newsletter. Easiest place to find that. Would love for everyone to subscribe. Send it out about twice a week. Hopefully some really good tactical stuff. And then I'm at sahilbloom on on every major social platform. Sweet. Well, I'll make sure to plug all that stuff in the show notes. And for those that are listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that Sahil said about his personal journey. Maybe it was something that he shared about timelines. Maybe it was something that Sahil shared as far as how he gauges success or how passionate he is about his health. Whatever the takeaway was, tag Sahil, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.